How about now? Okay, there we go. All right. As, as Gabriel said, Bart and Kathy are out. Uh, the funeral for Kathy's brother was yesterday. So they're in Texas. I think they're actually driving back this morning. They may be listening to this. And so we, we love you, Bart and Kathy. We're praying for you and uh, excited to, to have you back. Um, if you were here Wednesday night at the, fin- the uh, Fullness family meeting, you heard Bart do a nice little roast of all of the, the Fullness staff. And for me, he kind of zinged me for comparing how I used to dress and appear as a, as a teenager versus how I do now. And I wish I had a snappy comeback, but the truth is everything that I have on was picked out by my wife. Um, so what can I say? I, I married up. Um, so we're in a series that Pastor Bart started last week called Fullness 3.0. Really a, a clever title because we're, we're celebrating 30 years. Uh, and April 30th is our, is our 30th anniversary Sunday. And so the purpose of this series is really to look back to celebrate the faithfulness of God over the last 30 years in this place. But not to just look back, but to look forward with, a, with anticipation for what God's going to do in the days ahead, building on the foundation of the past, but moving forward into what he has for us. And, um, you know, I was, I think I was nine years old when our family first started coming to Fullness. I think it was 1994. So I grew up here. This has been my, my church for the vast majority of my life. This has had a, a massive impact on my spiritual formation um, me and my, my family, uh, many of you know my dad was a longtime college baseball coach here in town, and uh, there were multiple times where he turned down really more prestigious jobs in other cities because of fullness, because he didn't want to take our family away from, from this place because he had seen the impact that this was having on our family. So this is a very, a very special place to us. And there's so many things that I appreciate and love about fullness, but one of the things that I have so appreciated, probably not at the time growing up, but now I do, is we don't just say that we're about all of the word and all of the spirit of God, but we actually have practiced that, and that's been under the leadership of Pastor Bart and the elders, and particularly the way that, that they've handled things like spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare. Um, I am very aware that many people have had very bad experiences with charismatic churches and, and charismatic Christians with how they've handled those topics and seen them handled in a way that's really rather spiritually abusive and manipulative. But I can say just from my experience growing up as a son of this place, I've not, I've not seen that here. I mean, we're not, we're not perfect by any means, but, but I do want to honor Pastor Bard and the elders and how they've how they've really sought to walk that balance of, of word and spirit. Um, so uh, with that said, I, I do have to say, you know, there, there have been people that grew up at fullness, young people who came up alongside me in the youth group who have since walked away. Um, they've since rejected the profession of faith in, in Jesus that they once had. And, you know, if you were to look at their lives now, you would say they have not conquered. They have not overcome, at least up to this point in their life. And so really, one of the passions of my life, you know, I'm an associate pastor here. I work with the, the youth, the, the young adults, the young people here. One of, one of my passions has become wanting to see our young people conquer the opposition of the enemy against them and to follow Jesus in Babylon 
meaning in our current cultural climate, with endurance all the way to the end, not just for a season of their life, but to the end. And that's what I want to see for all of us, that we conquer, that we conquer the enemy. And um, so what we're going to look at today is a passage from Revelation 12 that I believe is actually incredibly helpful for helping us conquer the enemy um, in following Jesus. So just a few things as we approach Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation 12, 7 through 12, verses 7 through 12. And I know it's kind of always a dangerous thing to jump right into a passage in Revelation. It's a rather intimidating book for believers. Um, But just a few things, I think, to help us as we approach this book of Revelation. And that is this. Make sure that this is going. All right, just a few things to keep in mind as we, as we approach the, 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 the literature of Revelation is Revelation is it's a, it's apocalyptic literature. It's what is known as apocalyptic literature. This comes from really verse 1 of Revelation where it says the very first phrase is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word that we translate as revelation is really actually literally the first word in the original manuscript. And it's the word from what we get our word apocalyptic. And this is really what John is saying is he's, he's describing this is what he's going to be writing. This is the type of literature that he's going to be giving. It's apocalyptic literature. And that was actually a style of literature that was written thousands of years ago that they would use. And it was basically this way of conveying truth, conveying a message using symbols, using lots of symbols and imagery. And so... If you've read Revelation, you know there's lots of strange, crazy things. You're going to have beasts and dragons and plagues and all these things. And the fact that it's apocalyptic means that there's a lot of symbolism here. And so you're reading a lot of symbols. It doesn't mean that they're not true. It means that they are symbolizing something else that is true. Second, it's not just apocalyptic, but it's prophetic. Um, That doesn't just mean that it's predictive of the future. Prophetic also means in Scripture that it's kind of a... It's sort of a calling to repentance, which happens a lot in Revelation. It's a calling to repentance away from sin and idolatry and calling back to God. And that's what's happening in Revelation. But of course, also, it is predictive. There are things that are going to happen at the end of the book that we're still waiting for to happen in human history. And then third, Revelation, I think this is something that we often miss. Revelation is pastoral. It's really meant to be pastoral to the church, to the followers of, of Jesus. Um, scholars would agree that, that apocalyptic literature was really a, a type of literature that was usually written in times of crisis. Um, and, and it was written to encourage the readers and to give them the hope and encouragement in the time that they were living in. And also not to just be entertaining literature for them to read, but it was meant to provoke a response by the readers of it. And so Revelation, it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, it's pastoral. Um, Okay, so this book was also written to, there's debate, but it was probably written in the late first century to believers living in Rome, which is in the book called Babylon, um, symbolized by by the, the term Babylon, but living in a time where they were about to enter into a time of very intense opposition and persecution from the Roman Empire. And so this is being written to them to give them courage to follow Jesus in the midst of opposition in the 
in their, their place and time where they were living. So it's very fitting, I believe, to the time that we're, we're living in now. So we're going to jump into Revelation 12. So just to catch you up real quick. So already in the book, you've had John's vision of Jesus. Um, you've had the, the letters to the seven churches. You've had the vision of the throne room in John 4 and 5. You've had the, the seven seals. You've had um, the seven trumpets and some other visions mixed into there. And then in Revelation 12, many scholars would say this is kind of the key to the whole apocalypse. Um, John's going to see this new kind of starting of a new series of visions that is really going to give um, the nature of the opposition that the church is facing. And so already at the beginning of Revelation 12, we've been introduced to this character of this really um, nightmarish figure of this great red dragon with seven heads who's basically salivating over the idea of getting to devour a baby. Um, very, I mean, it's, it's pretty gruesome stuff, but we're going to pick it up in Revelation 12, verse 7, where John says this. Now war arose in heaven. Michael, the archangel Michael, and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the, drake, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, some commentators will say, I went a little bit too, too far. Some commentators will say that this uh, fall of the dragon, him being thrown down, is, is a futuristic thing. That this is going to happen at the end of history and lead to a, an even more intense time of persecution against the church. Um, many other scholars would say this is, no, this was actually something that happened at the first coming of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, that that was kind of a, a throwing down of the authority of the enemy and leading to this time of the church where the enemy is coming against us and, and opposing us and trying to, to devour us. And I'll be up front with you. Um, I would hold to that perspective. You don't have to agree with me. Um, I don't think that's really important for the points that we're going to be looking at today. But I want to look at this passage as really this is describing what is the nature of of the enemy's opposition against us, the people of God, and how do we conquer him? Okay, that's, that's the big idea of what we're going to be looking at together. So three things I want to draw from this passage, and the first is this. Went too far, I think. Hey, uh, Aaron, can you go back to, or Patrick, go back to point one. So point one is this, the spiritual battle is real, and you are caught up in it whether you realize it or not. The spiritual battle is real, and you are caught up in it whether you realize it or not. Um, fullness has had a great 
heritage of, of youth workers, youth pastors. And actually, I didn't know this, but my very first youth pastor is here today, Greg Rogers. And so I just want to, I want to honor you, Greg. You've had such an awesome impact in my life, and I appreciate you and your, um, your heritage here. It's still felt today. Um, but I wanted to, to share also about another youth pastor who came later in the line after, after Greg. He was the one who directly preceded me, and I interned under him, a guy by the name of Josh Walsh, who was a really gifted uh, minister of young people. And for whatever reason, I will always remember this one conversation that we had. We were having lunch one day. This was years ago. Um, he had gone on a mission trip. I believe he had gone on a mission trip to India, and I think he'd actually gone with Chris Kuhn, one of our, our elders. And, and this was probably 10-plus years ago. And he had come back. I was an intern for, for Josh for a while with the youth group, and we were having lunch one day, and he was kind of just recounting some things from the, the mission trip to India. And um, I always remember this one thing that he said. He said the whole time, really, that they were over there in India, they felt this spiritual darkness, this spiritual heaviness and oppression wherever they would go. And but it would be especially intense when they would walk by like a Hindu temple or a Hindu priest. Um, but the whole time they were over there, he could just sense it. But then he said, when the plane touched down back in the States, when they were, had flown back, he didn't feel it anymore. He didn't sense it anymore. And that's always stuck with me. But the point is not that the enemy is not active in the West, right? The point is, he's, he's much more secretive in, in his activity in the West. I mean, how much more effective can an enemy be when he convinces you that he's really not, that he doesn't exist or that he's not active in your part of the world? But a large point that Revelation, the, the whole book of Revelation, but this text in particular is making is, it's, it's peeling back the curtain and saying, look, this is what's really going on. There is actually an intense, real spiritual battle. And you may think that it's there or not, but you're caught up in it whether you realize it or not. And so we want to be aware that it is going on. Not fearful, not paranoid about it, but we want to be aware of it. I want my kids to grow up with an awareness that there is real spiritual warfare that's happening. A few weeks ago, this is probably several weeks ago now, um, I was putting my daughter Ellie to bed. She's seven, and we're reading through the Gospel of Mark right now together at, at bedtime, and um, the enemy and his demons pop up a lot in the Gospel of Mark. And so it, I don't remember what we had read that night, but she is kind of interested right now in this sort, sort of idea of a, there's an enemy out there. And uh, she asked me, she said, Daddy, if Jesus is stronger than Satan, why doesn't he just beat him and kill him? <laughs> and I mean, I'm like, wow, some of the most profound questions come from, come from kids. And honestly, I was like, I'm not totally sure what to, to answer here in the moment. And so I'm like, you know, Ellie, I, Jesus did defeat Satan, but he didn't completely destroy him. Um, but I don't actually know for sure why he has let him hang around, but I think that he just, he wants us to trust him and to rely on him when, when Satan comes against us. So um, we want to be aware that there is an enemy, that there is a battle. Ephesians six twelve, very famous verse says this, for we do not wrestle against our spouse. We do not wrestle against our kids. We do not wrestle against those who we consider our 
political enemies or whatever, fill in the blank. But we wrestle against, we strive against um, the, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the rulers, the authorities, the spiritual forces of evil. That is the nature of our battle. So, number two is this. Not only is there a spiritual battle, but your enemy has a strategy to defeat you. Your enemy has a strategy to defeat you. As I said, and as, as many know, my dad was a longtime college baseball coach. When I was in college, I was, for four years, I was the equipment manager who was with the baseball team. So I took care of the laundry and stuff. So real, real glamorous job. Um, but no, it was, it was actually a lot of fun because I was with the baseball team all the time. And so I was there for the pregame meetings for pretty much every game. And uh, one of the interesting things about pregame meetings, well, there aren't as many pep talks as what you might guess before a game. That's why I think, I think sports movies tend to, this is a, an aside, sports movies tend to get it wrong. They make it seem like every game, it's like it's, who's going to win the game is based on which coach gives the best pep talk. That's really not, not very realistic. Um, those didn't happen very often. But what did happen before pretty much every game was a scouting report where the coaches had, had been working to prepare a scouting report and they would share it with, with the team as we were getting ready, as they were getting ready to go into this, this competition. What was the whole point of a scouting report? Well, it was to look at, to evaluate what are the patterns and tendencies of our opponent? What have been kind of the, the things that they have repetitively done and how they have found success against other opponents and have been able to defeat other opponents. Because the idea was this, if that's how they defeated other opponents, and those have been their patterns and tendencies over the, a long period of time, they're more than likely going to use the same strategy against us. And that doesn't mean we're going to be able to defeat them, but at least we're going to have an idea of what is going to be their strategy coming against us. And Revelation 12, this passage on the enemy, I think gives actually a very descriptive scouting report on what is the strategy of how our enemy is going to come against us. He's referred to as a lot of names in this passage. There's a lot of names that are stacked up of our enemy, how he's described. And in Scripture, if you've been reading the Bible for a while, you've picked up that names are very significant. They mean something about somebody, both in a, a positive sense and in a negative sense. So what is our enemy referred to? How is he referred to in this passage? Well, several things. Um, he's called the dragon. Uh, dragon was, in the Old Testament, was always used to refer to as this imagery that was always used to refer to really the evil empires that were coming against the people of God. Many times it was referring to Egypt that enslaved the people of God. So it's kind of this Exodus imagery that's going on here in, in this passage. He's referred to as the ancient serpent, which you probably pick up. That's a reference back to Genesis 3, where the serpent comes in to, to tempt Eve. And we're going to come back to that in a second. He's called the devil, which that word literally means slanderer, one who slanders. He's referred to as Satan, which that word is really actually more of a title, meaning the adversary. So he's actually, more literally, he's the Satan, the adversary. Um, he's also the deceiver of the whole world who deceives um, the whole world. And then he's the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before God. And so what I see here 
is this. Now, I'm not going to give a comprehensive scouting report on the enemy, but I see here a threefold strategy from these names of how he tries to come against you and how he tries to come against us, the people of God. And it's this. The Satan, the adversary, he slanders, he deceives, and he accuses. And here's how I want to break this down. He slanders God to you. He deceives you to yourself. And he accuses you to or before God. He slanders God to you. He deceives you to yourself. And he accuses you before God. So let's break that down here. So first of all, he's, this, he's the, uh, the slanderer. He's the one who slanders God to us. The first time that we see this is way back in the beginning in Genesis 3, when the serpent comes to Eve, and he says a few things to her. First of all, he, you, I think you know the story. He questions the truth of God's word. Did God really say? Did God actually say you shouldn't do this? But then, a couple verses later, he basically, he accuses God's character. He says, basically, the reason why God is doing, has put these boundaries in place is because he's actually holding out on you. He's not, he knows what you'll get if you do this thing, and he doesn't want you to get that. He is holding out on you. He is, so he's slandering God's character before her. One of my favorite uh, Puritan authors, a guy by the name of John Owen, who I, we've named our, our son after, he says this. He says, flesh and blood is apt to have very hard thoughts of him, talking about God, to think he is always angry, that it is not for poor creatures to draw close to him. Now, there is not anything more grievous to the Lord, nor more subject to the designs of Satan upon the soul than such thoughts as these. Satan claps his hands, if I may say so, when he can take up the soul with such thoughts of God. This has been his design from the beginning. And Owen basically goes on to say, hey, this is the way he caused our first parents to fall. He put hard thoughts of God in their, in their heads. It's been successful in the past, and so this is the way he does it with us. He slanders the character of God to us. How does he do that? Well, he tells us that God's heart for us is not love. He tells us that God's boundaries are not for our good, but they will deprive us of something. He tells us that God doesn't really see us and care about us and our situation. He tells us God is stingy toward us. These are all ways of slandering God's goodness. And I'm becoming increasingly convinced that this is, in our moment in history, especially for younger generations, that this is really one of the core battles is, can I trust that God is good? There's still a question of, you know, is, is Christianity true? Is the Bible true? That hasn't gone away. But I think a question that has taken precedent over that, the way that the enemy is attacking our young people, is he's slandering the goodness of God. Is God good? Can you trust that God is good? He slanders God to us. But he doesn't just do that. He also deceives us to ourselves. He's known as the deceiver of the whole world in verse 9. I think it's significant that the longest teaching that Jesus ever does on Satan is in John chapter 8, 
where he famously refers to him as the what? Anybody remember? The father of lies. Who, when he lies, he speaks out of his own nature, out of his own character. That's the longest teaching that Jesus has on Satan, where he calls him the father of lies. John Mark Homer says this, Jesus sees our primary war against the devil as a fight to believe truth over lies. Um, the author and journalist Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote this book a few years ago called Talking to Strangers, where he's basically making the case that we're not very good as humans in talking to strangers. And in the book, he highlights this researcher who studies and is an expert in the subject of deception. And that, that's, what, that's kind of what he does. He, he studies like how effective we are at being able to detect if someone is lying or telling the truth. And so he would do all these experiments where he would have, bring people into this room and they'd have to watch a video of, of other people and try to figure out, is this person who's talking to this other person, is this person telling the truth or are they telling a lie? Are they deceiving or being honest? And what this researcher found is that they were able to detect if someone was lying only about 54% of the time. Only about 54% of the time. Now, here's the catch. Part of the people, some of the people that he was bringing in to study to see how good they were at detecting deception and lies were people like CIA agents, judges, police officers, people who, as part of their job, they're supposed to be able to detect if someone is lying or not. And even they were only getting it right just a little bit more than we would if we were flipping a coin. The point is, that we as humans are not good at detecting deception. And that's against other humans. Imagine how we are, what our success rate is, against the father of lies who's had millennia of practice and strategy. <clears throat> One of the great lies, I think, of our day is that you need to look inside yourself to figure out what your true identity is and to figure out what direction you need to go in life. The first place you look is not up to a spiritual being, not out to your peers, but you first look inside and you get in touch with your deepest, most core feelings, your deepest desires. You express those, you be authentic to those. And if others disagree with that, then you reject those people. If God disagrees with that, well, then you find a God who agrees with you. That's, I, I truly believe that is one of the core lies that is being told to our, really our young people today. But that's really just the air that we, we breathe here in the West. Um, and you may not think that is a, an effective lie to you, but the way the enemy is going to lie to you is it's going to sound reasonable to you. It may not sound reasonable to the person next to you. They may think, well, that's a stupid lie. I wouldn't ever believe that. Well, he's not lying. He's not, that's not how he's deceiving them. That's how he's deceiving you. And it sounds reasonable to you. Sam Storms, a uh, pastor, says this that I think is a, a helpful um, question to ask. He says, one especially important question we should all ask is this. If you were the devil, what tactics would you employ? How is he deceiving you to yourself? So he slanders God to you. He deceives you to yourself, but then he accuses you to God or before God. 
Um, another, he's, he's referred to in verse 10 as the accuser. Another old Puritan, uh, bringing a couple of old, old guys, old dead guys today, because um, I think they, they offer some profound stuff. Uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Brooks, he said this. Hold on, I think I'm having trouble. Aaron, could you call up that next slide? There we go. It says this, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. Any good fisherman knows that. He paints sin with virtuous colors. But after having tempted us to sin and mind sin more than Christ, then he makes us believe that we are not good because we were beset by temptation and cannot enjoy God as we once did. The moment we give in to temptation, Satan immediately changes his strategy and becomes the accuser. He moves from tempter to accuser. And we often hear the accusations of the enemy. Now, there's, there's overlap here between the, the lies of the enemy and the accusations of the enemy. But here's just some, some examples that I put down of ways that maybe you've heard the voice of the accuser in your life as he accuses you before the Father. You didn't just fail. You are a failure. Maybe as a father, as a mother, as a follower of Christ. You will never find freedom from this negative pattern in your life. You are of no use to the church or the kingdom of God. You are permanently damaged goods and you will never heal. You are unloved, unwanted, unimportant. The promises of scripture might apply to others, but they don't apply to you. These are powerful accusations that the enemy brings against us. And so this is a powerful strategy that he brings, right? He slanders the character of God to you. He deceives you to yourself and he accuses you to the Father. Well, so how do we conquer him? If this is his opposition against us, how do we conquer him? Well, we conquer him through being connected to the Lamb. We conquer the enemy by being connected to the lamb. Verse 11, this is really the, the core verse here in this passage. It says this, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. First of all is this, you don't conquer him by yourself. You can't conquer him by yourself. Jesus is the one who conquers him for you. He is the conqueror. And it's as you are connected to him, as you are in him, in the conqueror, that you get to share in his conquering. It's the blood of Jesus, meaning the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that conquers. But here's what I want us to notice, is that Jesus's blood meets and defeats every one of the enemy's strategies in your life. And here's how I think he does it. Satan slanders God to us, but Jesus's blood reveals the Father's love to you. Romans 8, 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point that he's saying is this. God's answer to Satan's slandering that he's been doing on the character of God since the garden, the great answer of God to the slandering of Satan is the cross. It's the cross of Jesus. That is God's answer to the slanders of the enemy. And a God that loves you enough to die for you is a God that you can trust is for you and that he is not depriving you because he's already given his best 
for you. Satan deceives us to ourselves, but Jesus' blood speaks our identity over us. It says in Revelation 5, 9 that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We don't belong to the enemy. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the Father. Revelation 7, 14 says that we have robes that are white that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's an image of, of purity and righteousness. That is our identity. And our identity spoken over us by Jesus' blood is more true, listen, is more true than any identity that we could label ourselves with. The identity that God speaks over you is more true than any identity that you could label yourselves with. And third, Satan accuses us to God, but Jesus' blood is the final word spoken over us. It says in, um, both in Romans 8 and in Hebrews 7, but I have up here Romans 8, that what Jesus is doing now, now that he is the resurrected and ascended king, is he's not doing nothing. He has a very specific task. He is interceding on your behalf before the Father. And the way that I have visualized that in my own life in the past, and I've, I've shared this with people before, is as I like to picture that it's like the enemy is screaming accusations against you before the Father, saying, look at him. He's fallen again. Look at her. She's, she's worth nothing. Screaming these accusations against you to the Father. And I picture Jesus, who's sitting right there at the Father's right hand. And now Jesus is not a disembodied figure. Jesus has a body, right? He resurrected physically from the dead and ascended physically. So he still has a body. He still has scars on his hands. And I picture him holding up his scarred hands before the Father and saying, Father, do you remember these? Do you remember that I have purchased them? I've purchased him. I've purchased her with my blood. And they belong to us. And they are ours. And whose voice do you think the Father is listening to? Do you think he's listening to the voice of the accuser? Or is he listening to the voice of his own beloved son? We know the answer. They had conquered him by the blood of the lamb. <clears throat> Sorry, I went too far. Aaron, if you can go back. They conquered him by the word of their testimony. This is the next phrase. The word testimony appears eight times in, in Revelation, and it always refers to the testimony of Jesus. In fact, that phrase, the testimony of Jesus, appears six times. And it's really, it means Jesus' testimony, the testimony of Jesus that he is giving. And, and the idea is that we as the church, we agree with the testimony of Jesus. We testify to his testimony. Um, so it's, it, it includes your personal testimony, but it's more than that. Um, I think, but I think too oftentimes we, we kind of downplay our personal testimony, right? I know I've, I've done that in the past. I, you know, I compare it to someone else's story and I'm like, that's not as dramatic as, as someone else's testimony. I don't really have this huge story of, of, of being saved. And so maybe a little embarrassed about my testimony, but the reality is this. Every single one of you has a miraculous testimony. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive, and you are now his. 
That is our testimony. And you don't have to be ashamed of your testimony. Um, as one who's grown up at fullness, some of the most powerful times for me over the years have been when I've gotten to hear old, people who are farther along in the faith, older saints, testify to the goodness of God in their lives in the midst of hardship and say, that was really hard. Or what I'm going through right now is really hard. But his goodness has been chasing after me my whole life. He's been faithful to me. But it, it's not just your personal testimony. Because it says here, it's the word of their testimony. So I think there's also a very much a, a corporate aspect to this. It is our testimony. We testify together. When we come together on Sunday mornings, we are testifying together of the greatness of Jesus. When we pray for each other, when you pray for, for a brother or a sister, you are testifying to them of who Jesus is. When you gather as small groups, you are testifying together of the greatness of Jesus. When we, in just a few minutes, we're going to come to the, the table of the Lord. We testify together. This is our testimony of who Jesus is and how he has overcome, how he has conquered on our behalf. And then lastly, they loved not their lives even unto death. This includes all suffering for Jesus, I think. Because this, this passage where the enemy is accusing us, he's not just talking about him accusing martyrs. He's, he is doing that. But he's, he's accusing all believers, right? He's accusing all of us. So this is talking about all believers. That all of us, um, when we suffer for Jesus... That is how we overcome. So this is any opposition that you face for the sake of Jesus, whether that be in your workplace, whether that be at school, whether that be from people in your own family. And here's the thing. Opposition that you face for the sake of Jesus is actually evidence that you are conquering, that you are overcoming. Because one of the themes of Revelation is that the people of God, they follow the lamb wherever he goes, says in Revelation 14. They follow the path that the lamb took. And what was the path? What was the way that Jesus took? Well, it was the way of the cross. It was the way of suffering. He had to go through that. He couldn't skip that step. He had to go through that. And then after that was resurrection. So we follow him on the way of suffering. And that is how we overcome. And in courageous conquering and revelation does not look like winning in the eyes of the world. In fact, it might look like weakness in the eyes of the world. But facing opposition for Jesus and facing opposition while walking in the way of Jesus, while holding to the truth of who Jesus is, that is how we conquer and overcome. Amen? I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Gabriel to come up. And we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper today, today and, and testify together. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Jesus, for who you are. I honor you for your blood that has conquered on our behalf. And I pray for us here at Fullness in the years to come that we will indwell this story of Revelation 12 and that we will be found faithful to be part 
of those who are not ignorant of our enemy and his schemes, that we're aware of his strategy, but that we would be those who overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony as we testify together, and by the fact that we love not our lives, even unto death. I thank you, God, for what you have done these past 30 years and for what you're going to do in the days ahead. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Gabriel.